millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai, kake mai, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance a hoi. Later on in the show, we're catching up with all the big kākāpō news and some little kākāpō chicks. But first up, we've got something from the RNZ chemistry podcast, Elemental. Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology and I are on an alphabetical journey through the periodic table to mark 150 years since Dmitry Mendeleev invented it. This week, we are up to the letter B and the element barium. Barium. How do we pronounce barium to begin with? Because if you look around the place, you will see it called barium or barium. I've and never heard it called barium. Is this yeah. like an Australia-New Zealand pronunciation no, thing? No, I don't think so. I think it's more an English pronunciation, in fact. What do you yeah. call it? I call it barium, but one of the guys that uh, I worked under in my PhD, he always called it barium. So Okay. Um, yeah. Tomato, tomato, barium, <laughs> barium, off you go. <laughs> okay, barium, the elemental symbol BA, and it is number 56 on the periodic table, which puts it a little bit sort of below middle on the left-hand side. And barium first came to exposure, pardon the pun, as part of things called Bologna stones in Italy in uh, sort of the 1700s. And these were weird things that were found to phosphoresce. So you expose them to light or you expose them to heat and then you put them in the dark and they glow in the dark. The name comes from the Greek baris, meaning heavy, and it ends in I-U-M because it's a metal. So it's got a name that means heavy and it's a metal. Is it a heavy metal? (laughs) Kind of seems obvious. um, Yeah, you probably wouldn't actually call it a heavy metal. They're more over towards the other side of the periodic table, your classic heavy metals. Barium's on the left-hand side of the periodic table. It's in group two. And our previous episode on astatine, we talked about groups as being the columns on the periodic table. So this is in the second column of the periodic table. And its buddies in that particular group are elements such as beryllium, which we're going to do in our next episode, magnesium, calcium, strontium, and radium. And again, the fact that they're all in group two means that they behave chemically similarly. So we've talked about the columns on the periodic table. What about the rows on the periodic table? The rows, the ones going across, we call periods. Ah, hence the periodic table. Aha, yes. Also the fact that period in the sense of repeating. And the way that that works is that as we go across a period, we eventually come to an end and we go back and we start again. So as we go along a row on the periodic table, what we're physically doing is filling electrons. We're giving them more and more and more and more electrons until you get right to the right-hand side of the periodic table. That particular shell of electrons then becomes full 
and we start another one and we go back to group one and we start going across another period on the periodic table. So, as you say, hence the name periodic table. And the fact that this is in group two and you're saying it's to do with the number of electrons, two electrons then? Indeed, yes, two electrons. As we talked about in the last episode of Astatine, we said that all of the elements in group 17 like to have one more electron and form a one negatively charged ion. All of the ones in group 2 really want to lose two electrons and form two plus ions. So calcium and magnesium and barium and all of these group 2 elements all form two plus ions. And therein lies their sort of similarity of chemical reactions. So they all behave fairly chemically similarly. So what you find is that barium doesn't exist as uh, the free metal in nature because it really, really, really likes to get together with uh, oxygen, also with sulfur, and it forms compounds. And you find these compounds as minerals such as barite, which is uh, barium sulfate, and witherite, which is barium carbonate. And so if you want to get pure metallic barium, you generally start with those particular compounds. And barium historically is very, very important in the development of nuclear fission because when people started playing around with uranium, shooting neutrons at uranium, what they found was barium was formed. And they couldn't figure out how barium could possibly be formed from uranium. But then they figured out that what must be happening is that the uranium nucleus must be splitting essentially in half. And that was a very, very important observation. Indeed it was. So what does one actually do with barium? Well, there's lots of things that uh, barium can do. Because it is a a so-called heavy metal, it can be used in oil drilling fluids as weighting agents, white pigments and paints. Uh, Back when TVs had vacuum tubes, the tubes used to contain barium because they would be under vacuum. You didn't want any oxygen in there. And so because barium, as we said, really, really likes oxygen, you'd have metallic barium in there, and it was called a getter. (laughs) Because <laughs> it got the oxygen. <laughs> Indeed, because it, because it got the oxygen, absolutely. <laughs> and the use of barium that we would be most familiar with would be barium meal, uh, which is an X-ray diagnostic test, which is uh, what you have when you want to get an X-ray of your soft bits, intestines and stomach, etc., etc. I actually did some homework for this episode because I thought, oh, barium fa- sounds familiar. So if your doctor wants to X-ray, say, your esophagus or your stomach, then you drink this thick white gloop known either as a barium swallow or a barium meal. Um, That goes in from the top end, obviously. And if they want x-rays of your lower intestine, then Mm -hmm. you get a barium enema. And that's basically poured in from the other end. Indeed. (laughs) Either way, apparently it's quite harmless, but it's also rather unpleasant and might make you a little constipated. Well, here's the weird thing, because if you just take a simple salt of barium, something like barium chloride or something like that, what you'll find is it's very, very poisonous. And barium sulfate, which is the stuff that they use for the barium meals, technically, because it contains barium, it's very, very poisonous as well. And here we've got the doctors feeding you this stuff with no harmful effects. And the way that that works is that something like barium chloride is water-soluble. So that means if you ingest it, it can get all around the body very, very easily and it'll kill you. Whereas barium sulfate is really insoluble. And so all that it does, it forms a coating over all of your soft bits inside and then it gets excreted out the other end and it doesn't kill you. So the fact that it is poisonous is shown by the fact that you use barium carbonate as a rat poison. And barium carbonate, you put that uh, in an acidic stomach that then solubilizes it and you end up dead. 
A little-known fact, the terracotta warriors, those famous statues from Xi'an in China, uh, are coloured with pigments called Han Purple and Han Blue, and they are pigments which contain barium uh, in addition to copper, and it's the copper that actually gives these the colour. And so from Imperial China to modern America, a mineral called bonitoite, uh, which is barium titanium silicate, is in fact the official state gem of California. And where we would uh, see barium in action at least once a year is in fireworks, because if you put barium salts in a flame, they give you a beautiful green colour. And so all those greens that you see in fireworks are very, very probably barium salts which, let me remind you, are in fact toxic and are spreading all over the land in your big fireworks displays. Oh, I'll remember that next time I go to the Matariki firework display here in Wellington. (laughs) Apart from the fireworks, would I come across it in my daily life? Well, in fact, you are around about 22 milligrams barium yourself. So I'm part barium. Yes, indeed, you are. Barium is in food, even though it's poisonous. It is in foods such as carrots and onions and lettuce and beans and cereal grains. And apparently, particularly Brazil nuts, and people can get a little bit worried about the levels in Brazil nuts. And very, very interestingly, barium levels in your teeth can help scientists figure out exactly when a baby has transitioned from breastfeeding to eating solid foods. So there's an example of a Neanderthal baby, which scientists analysed and figured out that it had been breastfed until it was seven months old. And the way that they did this was to look at the ratio of barium to calcium in the teeth. And you might ask, why would you have barium in your teeth? Simply because, again, barium is in group two of the periodic table. So is calcium. They look very, very similar to the body. And so, therefore, you can get barium in parts of the body where calcium likes to be. Thanks, Alan. That was Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology, and he's my co-host on the podcast Elemental. You can catch up with all the episodes of Elemental so far, which is all the elements whose names start with A, at rnz.co.nz slash chemistry, or on the Our Changing World webpage. You can also subscribe as a podcast in all your favourite places. And don't forget that Brian Crump's sister series, Element of the Week, is on Friday nights during Nights with Brian Crump, which he pairs with a chemistry-themed sonic tonic. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pānaki a papatua nuku, tangaroa meirangi nui. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, it's kākāpō time. The Kākāpō Files podcast has been following the highs and lows of this year's amazing Kākāpō breeding season. And what a year! As I'm recording this show, the egg tally stands at 246 eggs. As Kākāpō recovery program scientist Andrew Digby pointed out on Twitter, this is more than 60% of all Kākāpō eggs that have been produced since 1981. And that's just in one year, and that's not the final tally. There are more being laid. There has also been a record number of chicks hatching, 67 and counting, but there have also been a few chick deaths. In this episode of the Kākāpō Files, I catch up with the hand-rearing team on Whenuahau, Codfish Island, as they look after some very small Kākāpō chicks. I'm James, I'm the manager of veterinary services up at Auckland Zoo, and I've been involved in the Kākāpō recovery programme since 2014 and this is my third breeding season and it's a real a real privilege and an honour to be able to help out. 
My name's Catherine and I work at Auckland Zoo on the bird team there. And I'm here helping the Kākāpō project with the hand rearing because there's so many chicks this year. And hello to a couple of very small Kākāpō chicks. We're off to the chick rearing room, which is where James and Catherine and these chicks all hang out. So these three little guys are about 48 hours old, so they're just less than 30 grams. So you're using a wee syringe there, how much does it get fed? Yeah, so that's calculated as a percentage of their body weight, and so roughly these guys are getting 60 to 70% of their body weight every day, so it's an enormous amount of food they require when, when they're this young, and so they get that in eight to ten feeds a day and it's a real art because the food's got to be kept in the water bath at 42 degrees C the same temperature as, as mum's body temperature but as soon as you take the syringe out and start feeding that starts to get cold so we have a couple of syringes and we keep cycling through the water bath and feeding the chicken got to get the food in quick but not too quick it's got, got to be Goldilocks temperature not too hot not too cold and got to go in quickly but not too quick to make them choke. How many chicks have you got here at the moment? So we've got five in this room and then a sixth one that's uh, less than 24 hours old and we're just waiting for it to get to the stage that it needs uh, food so it's having it's down in the incubation room slightly different temperature and having water orally until hopefully the next feed and then it's going to start to come up here and be on normal normal bird food. What temperature are you keeping these birds at? They start off about 36 when they're hatched and they come down roughly a degree a day. So that's why we've got three incubators in this room all at one degree C different. And then as we get the different ages of chicks up, we can manage them appropriately. So what's she doing at the moment? Essentially we're simulating the, the mother's beak with her finger and thumb either side of the corners of the beak. And by just touching gently, so you don't push and you don't squeeze, we just touch and that stimulates this begging response. So that's really important the chicks for the chicks behaviourally, but we think it's also important perhaps to help them digest their food and, and those chicks that end up back in a nest, they need to build up all those muscles properly, so they need to they need to bag beg and and do all these movements to build up their muscles and grow properly. Quite often accompany it with a an imitation of the sound of the mother as we're feeding and, and doing the, the begging stimulation and that sometimes gets the chicks really going for it which just helps the feeding process. I think you should try that again because the chick actually responded. So one has to ask what you're doing with yellow nail polish. In order to tell the difference between these little fluffy white balls of kākāpō, we use a little bit of nail polish on the end of the feathers, and that helps us visually ID them when they're in the incubator. The amount of food we give each one depends on its body weight, and obviously that's really variable, so it's important we keep track of who's who. So if it has yellow nail polish on it little bits of down, you coat everything else that's to do with that chick with yellow nail polish. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a colour ID on the chick, a colour ID on the syringes, and then a colour ID on their notes. And we just make sure that they're all the same and we're giving the right food to the right bird. And we always 
triple check the volumes and you know measure everything three times make sure we got everything right and they've each got an individual meal plan they have yeah and that depends on their weight and also on their age generally the younger they are they get a higher percentage of their body weight in a day but they get it in smaller more frequent feeds and then obviously the older they get they can get proportionally bigger but less often meals and that changes every two or three days so by the end of this week we're going to have three or four different meal patterns going on across eight or ten different chicks and so yeah logistics and having a good system is really important otherwise you can get in a you know you could get in a bit of a mess so that's a morning visit and i pop back in the evening Last time I came in to see you in here, you had five chicks. Now you've got six on the board, so what's happened? I've got six. Very exciting. Well, number six hatched last night, quite late, and we don't give them their first meal until we know they can pass a faeces. And we've been waiting all day, checking in his incubator, nothing, until now. What time are we? 8 p.m. Poke a bottom enough and a big poo falls out, turns out. Yeah, these are the kind of things that kākāpō foster mothers yeah. <laughs> talk about. It's like people with their babies. <laughs> a preoccupation with poo. Other than that, he's really bright and feeding well and he's about to have his first first meal of his life. When are you going to pot it in with the other chicks? Does it get to probably cuddle up sometime? Yeah, so he needs to be probably almost two degrees warmer than these older chicks, even though there's only 48 hours between them. So he'll stay in this slightly warmer incubator till tomorrow, and then if he's doing okay, we'll trial him in this one. And we did that with one of the chicks yesterday, and after half an hour, it was shivering a little bit, so we put it back and tried it again a few hours later. And yeah, probably at some point tomorrow, he'll end up with, with the others, and we'll try and put him in with some friends, so we'll have two groups of three and that'll create some space before the next two eggs hatch, which is probably going to happen in the next 24 hours. So it's certainly ramping up. forward five hours and I'm now in the incubator room with the eggs. I'm Alyssa Sultan and I'm from Arana Wildlife Park in Christchurch. So Alyssa you and I have been pulling the midnight hours because we've been waiting for a kakapo chick to hatch. Yep <laughs> we've and been up for a wee while. <laughs> so it's nearly half past one in the morning and in the ten minutes since we were last in it's hatched. Real freshly hatched. It's kicking strongly, isn't it? Yeah, got some really good movement there. I think they're beautiful, but they're very, very pink and very wet, and all of their down that will fluff up is all stuck to them. So you get a very good look at what a kakapoo looks like without any feathers. <laughs> so there's a few things that you need to do. Yeah, so just just going to give the wee chick a few minutes to settle and have a wee rest because that would have been a pretty exhausting time for doing a big hatch like that so we will bed a day in the navel so put some antiseptic onto the navel and then we will weigh 
chick and then we'll also weigh the shell and the membranes that are in the shell and the waste that's in the shell and then we're going to take a little sample of the membrane so that we can do some DNA testing. So there's a few little housekeeping jobs but then otherwise pretty much it just keeps to stay in its incubator and just start drying out a bit? Yeah, then we'll let him or her have a, a bit of a rest for quite a few hours just to settle and dry and then when we come and see them later on there should be a much fluffier chick than what we're seeing right now. This is one of Wa's eggs. Yeah. So Wa's doing well this year so we're looking at the board that's got all of the chicks that have hatched so Wa 2 and Wa 3 and this is now Wa 4. She's had a good run. She's had a very good run. Fast forward another 36 hours and as well as more good news, Daryl Eason has some worrying chick news. Tell me what's going on, Daryl. Wah for they've just been a bit lacklustre the whole time. And I've been giving it some extra glucose solution yesterday, but it's still not picking up. And this morning, still looking okay, but not feeding very well. And now he's just stopped processing the food that was given to it at 8 o'clock. So, yeah, it's time to sort of move with some subcut fluids to... So that's subcutaneous. Subcutaneous fluids, yes, to, give, to stop it getting dehydrated and to help make sure that food can move through its system. And we'll probably also start with some subcutaneous antibiotics as well just to get on top of whatever's causing that problem. So the other things didn't work prior to antibiotics, so now we'll move to that level. So you've been a bit worried about this wee chick. Yeah, the others have just all been so strong from, from hatch. You know, you see them a couple of hours after hatch and they're begging like crazy. But this one's just never really got off the ground, really, yeah. So who have you got there today, Catherine? This is Nora 1A, also known as Red Wing. She hatched somewhere in the middle of the night. I found her at 6am this morning, so she maybe she hatched... Maybe around 2am or something, because she was pretty dry when I found her, so it means um, she'd had time to dry out in her little hatcher. So it's midday right now, so she's maybe 10 hours old. Yeah, and this is her second solid meal, and she's doing real good. Now she, I think, is the first chick to hatch from Fenuahoe this year. I know, very exciting. First from Fenuahoe, it's been all the anchor eggs that's been hatching so far. Yeah, so she's a big, strong Fenuahoe baby. It's interesting. So Nora is the matriarch of the Wynn dynasty, so that's another Wynn dynasty baby. I remember hand-rearing Nora's chicks last breeding season. She actually didn't breed for about 30 years. Oh. There was this gap in the middle because she was very bad at picking her boyfriends. Oh. She kept mating with Lionel, who turned out to be quite the dud. Oh. <laughs> but now that um, he's not around anymore and she is picking some fertile partners yeah she's back on the chick wagon yeah Yeah, she's doing really well actually even thinking about it probably some of Nora's granddaughters are probably breeding as well I find it really lovely that you get um the grandmother the mother (laughs) the daughters they're all still having babies together (laughs) all totally normal in Kākāpō land
Now, Kakapo Conservation is a roller coaster ride. We've all been worried about WA 4A. The chick I watched hatch in the early hours of the morning, and I finally catch up with James later in the afternoon. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, that chick has died this afternoon, so despite all the treatment we've been giving it through the day, not unexpectedly, but it has just passed away. That's really sad. It was only 36 hours old, so this chick was a very slow hatch. It was a really weak feeder comparatively, so this is part of what we do as zoo vets. First, you have to know what normal is, and so hand-rearing all these chicks this season, we know what a normal chick looks like and feeds like, and right from the first feed for the whole 36 hours, this chick was really weak. And so we knew the chick was fighting uphill struggle, and unfortunately, it's lost that struggle now. So we think this chick was really weak from the moment it hatched. It was about two-thirds of the weight of an average Kakapo chick. It hatched really slowly, and then every single feed for the next 36 hours, it was really weak and, yeah, just not showing us the signs of life that all the other chicks do. So we had a, a bad feeling about it. We supported the chick with fluids, with drip fluid under the skin, with antibiotics, with lots and lots of supportive care, but despite all of that, unfortunately, lost its battle. But I think, whilst that's sad for the individual bird... Hopefully some good will come of it. We work with the Kakapo team and do lots of research and the DNA samples that we took from that chick after, after death are going to contribute to the Kakapo genome project. We've not been able to obtain those samples before despite two years of trying, so if there can be some good to come of that chick's death, it's that it may contribute actually to what's known about the Kakapo's genome which is really important for the species as a whole. So hopefully no deaths in vain. And I think also this season, because it's such an amazingly big season and we're going to have 50 or perhaps more chicks, we would anticipate several deaths, both when they're very young and for the first year. So although we're all very excited to see all the live, healthy chicks, we all have to kind of emotionally prepare ourselves that a few of them aren't going to make it despite all our best attempts. Thanks, James. That was Auckland Zoo vet James Chatterton, and we also heard from fellow vet Catherine Franciscan, Alyssa Sultan from Orana Wildlife Park, and Daryl Eason from the Department of Conservation's Kākāpō Recovery Programme. You can catch up with the full Fat Happy Kākāpō Chicks episode of the Kākāpō Files at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, or listen to it as a podcast in all the usual places – Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public. And as an acknowledgement of the sadness we have all been experiencing in the last few days, Doc's Kakapo recovery team has named a chick that hatched on Anchor Island in the early hours of Saturday, Kotahitanga, meaning unity, togetherness or solidarity. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Kia Pai Tōpō.